0: There was no topsoil left. It was down to subsoil. So when we tried to start farming on it, we couldn't get stuff to grow. I just, I really remember green beans that just got to a certain point and would just turn yellow. And we didn't know what was going on, so we had a neighbor come over and take a look. And he dug down about 8 inches, 6 to 8 inches, and found a white, a thick white chemical hard pan that Roots could not get through. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the 321st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, community food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. I'm recording this podcast a few days before Halloween. So how about a little ghost town story to get us started? In a previous life, while I was a reporter covering outdoor issues for a newspaper, I accompanied a group of coon hunters one night as they chased their hounds in the Whitewater River Valley, which is located in the Driftless region of southeastern Minnesota. At the end of the hunt, we parted ways and I promptly got lost. I drove around and around on back roads in the inky blackness, looking for any kind of landmark that would tell me where I was. By the way, this was before GPS or smartphone mapping apps existed. Finally, I pulled up on a small country cemetery. It turned out it's just about all that's left of the abandoned town of Beaver, an infamous footnote in soil conservation history. The town was founded in the mid-1850s and after the surrounding hillsides were stripped of their trees and grass, plowed up and planted to crops, the Whitewater River became uncontrollable due to all of the runoff that resulted. One year alone, the town was swamped more than two dozen times by waters carrying soil loosened from the surrounding hills. Finally, Less than a century after Beaver's first house was built, the flooding, silt, and mudslides won. The community was abandoned, and it became known as the buried town of Beaver. Well, I obviously made it out of the Whitewater River Valley alive that night. As it turns out, some three decades later, I found myself just a few miles from there on the ridgetop vegetable operation of Sandy and Lonnie Dietz. Given the area's soil erosion history, perhaps it's not surprising that taking care of the land was top on Sandy and Lonnie's mine when they started raising vegetables in 1996. Before they bought the farm, its soil had suffered as a result of intense corn and soybean cropping practices and lack of good biological activity. In fact, the soil was so poor, they had difficulty growing anything at first. Over the years, the farmers have used mulching and cover crops to build back their soil's organic matter and to prevent severe erosion. However, one thing that's always concerned Sandy and Lonnie was how much their organic vegetable production system relies heavily on tillage to control weeds. Such constant disturbance can be bad news not only when it comes to erosion, but also in terms of the soil's biological health and its aggregate structure. Through connections made via, among other things, the Land Stewardship Project's Soil Builders Network, the Dietz has learned about various ways to raise food without utilizing intense tillage. However. While no-till systems are pretty well established in conventional corn and soybean enterprises that can utilize chemicals to control weeds, it can be exceedingly difficult to keep weeds at bay in an organic system without disturbing the soil. As a result, Lonnie and Sandy's Whitewater Gardens Farm has gotten funding from the USDA's Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Initiative to study three different kinds of no-till vegetable production methods. Of course, One goal of this research is to determine which method best prevents erosion. But the Dietzes are also focused on finding a method that goes beyond the surface and helps build the soil biome, helping create fields that are resilient long into the future. One thing they've learned over the past three decades is that keeping soil in place is not enough. It's also critical to make sure there's good biological activity taking place in the underworld. That's why they're integrating extensive soil testing into the research project to measure what impact various snow till systems are having on the land's biology. Whitewater Gardens Farm recently hosted a field day where Sandy and Lonnie showed participants what they're testing and talked about some preliminary results. A few days after the field day I returned to the Whitewater River Valley, this time in broad daylight, to talk to the farmers about their goal of building soil profitably on a vegetable operation and why it's important to dig past the surface when doing research. Sandy started our conversation by describing the sorry state of their farm soil when they moved to the land over 30 years ago.
0: It had had at one point been a dairy farm and was taken care of very well. The the fields um, are fairly, most of the fields are fairly steep and they had strips, they did a probably a traditional five-year rotation, Mm -hmm. you know, that included small grains and hay, and it was taken care of very well. But then they sold the farm, and the person that farmed it after that just went straight fence row to fence row, corn and beans. Mm. And if a gully opened up, he just closed it and farmed right over it again. The soil had all washed down into the ravine, burying fences, And there was no topsoil left. It was down to subsoil. So even though when we purchased the farm, it had been in 10 years set aside (laughs) for more than 10 years, Mm -hmm. it was just planted to brome grass, and it really didn't do anything. It it saved the soil from eroding more, but it didn't do anything to build any soil back. Mm -hmm. So when we tried to start farming on it, we couldn't get stuff to grow. I just, I really remember green beans, that just got to a certain point and would just turn yellow. And we didn't know what was going on, so we had a neighbor come over and take a look and he dug down about eight inches, six to eight inches, and found a white, a thick white chemical hard pan that roots could not get through.
1: So what did you do what what did you how did you try to build that solar? What what were some of the things that you tried to do?
0: We started out with small areas. We did a lot of at that point, we did a lot of mulching, not necessarily with hay. It was, you know, mow the lawn, throw the, the grass on it, threw some cover crops in there. Eventually, getting uh, more activity back in the soil broke mm-hmm. through or dissolved that, that hard pan and started building the soil. It was only, we only had about a 1% organic matter mm-hmm. at the time, and we gradually built it up to around 3 Which isn't really high, but we were taking quite a bit of crop off of it at the time. So definitely in better shape than it had been. Yeah, I think that would be shocking to a lot of people
1: who think, well, if it was in set aside and there was a perennial grass being grown there, that soil is going to recover. But it takes more than that, doesn't it?
0: It definitely takes more than that, and when people say it takes a, a hundred years or how many years to build an inch of topsoil, that's how long it's going to take with a grass like that. But I do believe if you're proactive about it with cover crops and and things like that, you can build soil very quickly. The reason
1: that story really struck with me was I know we're within a few miles of the the abandoned town of Beaver, Minnesota, <laughs> yeah. and and I th- I find that story. You know, it's kind of. A, infamous story in the history of soil erosion in that it's a town that was literally had to be abandoned and moved because of, I guess, was it in the thirties, the the severe soil erosion? Is that when it was? Do you you remember Lonnie?
2: I think it was about 1933 that the town had flooded 28 times in one summer and that's pretty much when the people started moving out. There are stories of people that went to school down there, and there were 12 steps to get up to the school when they started. When they graduated, there were only two or three left. And when we bought this farm, Sandy mentioned um, some of the erosion, some of the problems, mm-hmm. and there was a five-foot wire fence going down one lane. And I remember going through that, and all of a sudden the top of the fence posts were below my knees so there's that much soil that washed down in that area and covered that so we had put in two diversion ponds too when we bought this to keep the water up on the farm instead of letting everything go down so we had implemented things like that and it's interesting when you do a diversion pond also in the next year you have frogs in there and you have the the aqua life that wasn't there was no water around the area and it's just there so
0: it's nice
1: I guess both with your farm and with the land in general it can recover if you give it a chance.
0: It can recover and what's interesting now is those both those diversion ponds basically have very little water in them right now mm-hmm. but they're surrounded with ground cover. Uh-huh. So they don't have as much runoff. They're fairly small drainage areas mm-hmm. and there's not as much runoff going in them anymore because we try to keep perennial grasses around them or the crops that are grown around are grown with more thought in mind to keeping the soil or the water up there
1: I mean it must be a really important reminder sometimes of that to remember that it can get that bad I mean we are seeing better conservation practices in this area here but wow I mean that wasn't that long ago and you know sometimes you do see some like fence row to fence row planting, and and you can see that little bit of erosion, but then you can get these big storms, that kind of thing.
2: Well, and right now, too, you're seeing um, a lot of the conservation practices are being removed because the equipment is getting bigger and bigger, so they're taking out the fence rows so they can just make one field instead of two or three fields. And they figure that the new equipment that they have now is better than the old equipment. They're not doing the moldboard plowing and stuff like that, so it is better, but you still have a lot of erosion with, um, with the larger fields.
1: One of the things you had looked into, and I think part of this was maybe inspired by your concern about just how bad a shape the farm was in when you first uh, started raising vegetables here and, and first started farming it, was this idea of, of you got interested in no-till vegetable production? That's that's kind of something that you don't see a whole lot. That there is a lot, often a lot of tillage associated with vegetable production, particularly organic vegetable production. So maybe talk a little bit about why you were interested in looking into no-till vegetable production and when you started. Uh, what were some of the things you started looking at with that?
0: I think just hearing some people talk about what they were doing to build their soil back up, um, I started getting interested in the soil biology and and what that entailed and and how to grow that soil biology. But what was happening with us on the farm? We were we were doing what most organic farms had done: a lot of cultivation, uh, that type of thing. But we found. Given the state of the land still at the time, being we're on super heavy clay, it takes a long time to build, and given the strange weather patterns, especially when we were in wet periods, we'd end up farming some fields that should have been put in co- cover crop, but we had to change our plans because of weather for whatever reason. And some of our soils started going downhill again. And that creates that cycle of the crop not producing well, so then you try to grow more and, and that type of thing. But when I started getting interested in soil biology and probably when I started hearing different people talking not on vegetables but on crops and grazing and things like that and then agreed to go on to the Soil Health Steering Committee with with LSP, I started hearing more and more stories from Some of the other farmers that were grazing or doing regular crops. And I I got really excited about the possibility of what you could do to build the soil. So then I started looking into um, no-till or minimal till with vegetables. And there's a few books out there from some people who have been who have been doing it. But I wasn't, you know, some of the methods to me seemed either difficult or maybe long term not real sustainable just kind of up in the air on, on what we should try to do here. Mm-hmm. And that had given me the idea of trying to do some side-by-side research on what might work best for us. And so
1: my understanding is it's, this is a, a research funded through the Sustainable Ag Research and Education Program. So describe kind of what the treatments are. The, the, I think there's three treatments you're kind of looking at and kind of describe what, what you actually uh, are looking at with this.
0: Okay, the, the treat, we, we do have three treatments as well as a control. Uh, we have 12 beds, so there's three repetitions of each treatment. The one, one treatment is a deep compost mulch, okay. which a lot of farms seem to be going to. Uh, another one is what we're calling cut-and-carry mulch, but ba- basically using a hay or straw mulch mm-hmm. on the crop. And then the third one that really intrigued me was a living mulch, where you plant into um, like a Dutch white clover or something like that. And I've seen people do or have grant projects on some of the individual treatments, but some of the things that they weren't paying attention to as much were the soil biology, what was changing in the soil biology. And I saw an awful lot of so much soil testing and constantly changing the soil test or the soils you know with additions and things like that which to me is a little bit worrisome too because it takes time when you add amendments for those amendments to work so i wish the project was longer than a 2 year project yeah. because i know some of the results won't really show themselves for a, for a couple more years mm-hmm. but we're hoping to see which treatment ultimately, I think, gives the best biological activity, which would, in the end, hopefully give us the best nutritional quality for the crop.
1: So not just trying to prevent that erosion, but really to try to Build that biology at the same time.
0: Build the biology, which in turn builds the soil, which in turn would give you a better crop. But we're also looking at how much labor is involved with each of the treatments, um, you know, what it does with soil temperature, how the how the pests react to it. We wanted to go further, as far as you know, testing for nutritional quality on the crops, but you had to cut it off somewhere. <laughs> yeah.
1: so, so, just backing up a little bit, the deep compost mulch—the first treatment you described—is mm-hmm. that it, it, yeah. it was called? What is that? How it sounds? You're just putting a lot of compost uh, on the on the rows. There is that what it, is it just how it that's, sounds.
0: That's basically what it is. You use about six inches of compost, partially to mulch down weeds. And I think that's probably the biggest part of it is to, is to keep weed pressure down, but you're also, you're also feeding soil. When you're doing that, um, I think a lot is dependent on the mulch you use. Each, each one of the treatments I have some concerns with. My concern with the deep compost mulch is ultimately having imbalances in the soil. Too much of some mineral or maybe even skewing the biology mm. more one direction than another.
1: With the cover crop, what you were using? was it Dutch white clover? Is that what you're using for that?
0: For the living for the living mulch, we're using Dutch white clover, which this year didn't work out well because we couldn't get it to germinate without without rain. and we're using we don't have I- overhead irrigation. So we're using drip irrigation. We only had one line per bed. It wasn't enough. I'm, we had we put a oat nurse crop on it, and we got a few oats to come up along the drip line. But until it rained, the oats didn't even want to come. Right.
1: And now we're just, just as I drove down here, the first frost of the year. So right. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of, it kind of puts an end to maybe getting stuff established but this time of year.
0: I'm hoping that the, that the Dutch white clover seed will overwinter okay mm-hmm. and then germinate in the spring. I want to see if it germinates. I'm a little bit concerned if it doesn't, then that, you know, we can't really use that data very well. But I could add more seed, but then if it does germinate, then we might have too heavy of a crop of clover and it might skew our crops a bit too. So that's
1: all part of the research, (laughs) the joys of research. Well, so I know this is the first year, so, and it's too early to tell, and and this has been an unusual, unusually hot, dry year. So it's not a typical year in any way, shape or form, but were there some things you were able to observe that first year that you're like, well, okay, this is something to keep in mind about no-till using no-till systems like this and, and, and some lessons learned maybe going into the future?
0: One of the biggest differences was between the um, control and the, the two mulched, the, the deep compost mulch and the cut-and-carry mulch. Those, those mulched areas are probably twice the size. The crops are probably twice the size of the control wow. and the living mulch that didn't germinate. So okay. that's acting quite a bit like the control. That was a huge difference there. I think soil temperature, we I noticed, was hugely different with the open ground was such a hot, dry year, down about three inches that soil temperature was just about the same temperature as the air temperature. Huh. So that's pretty darn hot, especially since our crop this year was broccoli or cauliflower, yeah. fall cauliflower. It was significantly cooler under the cut and carry mulch and a little bit cooler underneath the deep compost mulch. Those were big differences. Um, one thing that we've learned overall when you're doing minimal till or no till is gophers can be an issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> without going through and doing a lot of tilling they're setting up they're setting up home all over the place and they actually took probably about a quarter of our crop oh, wow. so we have to address that issue next year for yeah. sure it, with the cut and carry
1: mulch again as this as the sound as the name uh, <laughs> explains it's your what is it you're cutting the it's hay right that you're can explain what cut and carry what would that be
0: well, it's it's actually taking hay that's been, you know, you can purchase it baled or whatever mm-hmm. and use it, or you can cut your own and put it down fresh, which mm-hmm. some farms are doing. We don't have the equipment for that or anything, mm-hmm. so we purchased hay, and I purchased really good alfalfa hay versus um, straw, which a lot of people like to use, mm-hmm. because I feel that the alfalfa hay is going to add some nutrition to the soil. And we're careful that it was real good quality hay without, without weeds. Um, I think there is the idea out there that straw, you're not going to get the weed pressure. We've used straw mulch that had too much oats that had matured into it and had a huge oat crop <laughs> oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from yeah. it. Um, or you can have just as many weeds in a, yeah. in a straw.
1: Well, and I bring up hay because that's an issue in a drought year hay so expensive? Because I know you're looking at the economics and the labor based on uh, related to this. That's got to be a big thing to keep in mind too. It's like, well, it may work really well, but if it's not going to be economically viable, then that's not going to work in the long term.
0: Right. That is part of it. I'm trying to look at it as we're not put adding any additional fertilizer to anything. Okay. So I'm looking at that hay as additional fertilizer. That's One of the reasons that I used alfalfa. And in the long run, hopefully, you know, the increased biology will make nutrients more available to the crop versus having it open.
1: Well, I know one of the things, and you you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you're not just looking at trying to figure out the best way to cover that ground and keep it protected, but you're really looking at the soil health. And I know one of the things you did as part of this research project was... Uh, did some deep analysis of that soil through, like, the Haney test and, and that kind of thing?
0: We we had, instead of just having a regular soil test done, which we had that done too, but we had uh, Haney test done in addition, and we also had a uh, soil food web test done to take a look at the, the soil... or the biological activity at the beginning and then we'll do that at the end of the grant, um, at the end of the two years, and we'll see if there's a change in that activity.
1: Tell me more about why that, not just doing a regular soil test, you felt like you need to go beyond, and what is it you're actually looking at with with the soil food web test and the, the Haney test that maybe you wouldn't get normally through the other tests?
0: Well I think the availability of those nutrients in the soil, those minerals in the soil, is largely dependent on that biological activity. Mm-hmm. The Haney test take that takes that into consideration. And then the soil food web tests take a closer look at what those fungi, bacteria, nematode, you know, all those those counts are. I wish we had been able to do it sooner, but we also participated in a hundred farms project with the University of Minnesota. And the like the day after. The field day, we got results, the biological oh, results okay. from that. And it wasn't those fields. I wish we could have done it on those fields. Uh-huh. It was on our greenhouse, uh, two of the greenhouses and one other field. And they even took a deeper dive into what what is happening with those soils. And it's it's fascinating. I would love to do that with the grant project, but without probably another grant, I wouldn't be able to afford to have all that testing done. Yeah.
1: I find this research fascinating because you're kind of coming up with some things that maybe people wouldn't think of off the top of their head. And one of them was, you said the temperature, there was a big difference in the Mm -hmm. temperature, which is particularly important in a year like this where it was so hot and dry. But the other things, I think, Lonnie, you mentioned this, and I was surprised to hear this, but you felt like the compost, water, when rain did come, it was hitting that and kind of creating a little bit of a crust and it was shedding the water rather than letting it kind of soak in I, I was a little bit surprised at that and I think that's something to be, to consider when doing something you know anything you do there's going to be an impact maybe some unforeseen circumstances
2: that was something that we looked at the other day and also with the compost deep bed compost on top you're not covering it up so a lot of the nitrogen is allowed to go off into the air so mm-hmm. you're not gaining full benefit from the compost without covering it but also, it was a fine enough mesh that the water did run off um, to the side. So I was finding when I was doing the penetrometer, so that was part of our test, too, to see how, or where the hard pan was and yeah. how dry soil was. It was actually pushing down harder in the compost area than it would in the um, cut-and-carry area or even the open area, so you could tell that the water was being shed off. Now, there was moisture under the compost, so it was holding some moisture there, but there was quite a bit at surface level, but down deeper, it wasn't penetrating as much. So that was one of the things that we noticed in that, and that could be just this year, too, with all the way through July, I think we had about an inch of rain about July 13th, and we didn't have any more rain. August, I think we totaled about seven-tenths, maybe half inch and from July 13th all the way to September 13th. So we went two months with really virtually no rain at all to penetrate anything. So it's kind of unusual year to test these things. Yeah. Now, different mulches different deep bed mulches could act differently too. Now, we do use a vegetative mulch. We're staying away from the animal mulch because you can, without really having it tested, that's where you can really run into nutrient issues with high phosphorus or something like that. Um, So we're staying with the vegetative and not the animal compost. Uh, It's possible that the animal compost might have more activity. We've noticed um, more fungal activity With uh, the cut-and-carry mulch, too, on the surface level, you could see a lot of mycorrhizal where, with the dry compost, there was nothing at the surface level underneath the mulch that, again, could change if you had the animal um, compost. You know, you've
1: been here 30 years. You've always taken efforts to kind of rebuild that soil and bring it back, that this research maybe is that next step. It sounds like it's kind of fun Maybe a little bit fun for you to kind of figure out.
0: <laughs> what, I, I do what's love working. Out? I do love working with that. It's it's. Um, <laughs> I've been I've become kind of obsessed with it. Uh-huh. But if it's not fun, why do it, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well, and it, it's it's also kind of that that whole idea of farmer to farmer education, and that's what is great about programs like the Sarah program is it, it does allow you to, and I know you had a field day the other day, and a couple farmers came down. Who are vegetable producers, and we're able to kind of see what you were doing there a little bit. But it's um, it just kind of shows that you kind of came here and probably were a little bit surprised at how poor the soil was, and but were able to make it a, into a productive vegetable operation. But now you're able to. Say well, that's not enough, and that's the whole idea behind regenerative mm-hmm. or sustainable ags. You, it's kind of a continuum. You're never really done,
0: are you? Oh no, there's still so much that we don't know. We we tend to think that we know a lot about it, but we're always discovering something, something new. And it was so interesting that somebody mentioned at the field day too. You know, there's so many more things that we could take a look at. The soil food web tests are done through Elaine Ingham's. Um, work and she focuses on the microbiology whereas you know what about the macrobiology? what about the beetles and the mites and and the worms and and things like that that are coming back you could do counts on that you could there's so many different directions that you could research here and they really felt that we should see if we could somehow try to continue this afterwards whether it would be getting another grant I want to continue it to a point I just wouldn't be able to do all of the testing. So most of it would be just observation at that point. But if I could get funding afterwards, it would be fascinating. And I've got a daughter that is really into nutritional health and everything, and she would love us to be able to test if if there's nutritional differences in the different treatments too.
1: The whole world of soil health, the thing I've found most exciting about it is often the farmers are leading... Leading a lot of the work on that, they're s- observing things, but maybe not sure why they're observing things. So it's been interesting to see them team up with f- scientists and, and agronomists and and try to figure out well, what is why are we seeing some of these impacts and that kind of thing. And I think that I mean, I just it just the possibilities are boundless in some ways.
0: They they definitely are endless, and I I've, I've been encouraged to see some of the some of the agencies in the area getting more and more interested in, in soil health. And granted, we're focusing on vegetables, mm-hmm. but I think we need to focus more on the larger crops. Um, I know we're dependent on the corn and soybeans, but I think we can do it better. And I know there's a lot of no-till out there, but there's no-till that works and there's no-till that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And we've got a real good example close by of a farm that's been a no-till as long as we've been here but there is so much real erosion underneath and it takes years for anything to decompose mm. in there. So mm. that is a good example of, of no-till that isn't working.
1: Yeah, that's a super good example of you are protecting the surface, mm-hmm. uh, but you're not getting at the biology and the, the down, down deeper you're not building that aggregate structure maybe as well and building the actual biological health
0: right there's still the erosion there but people don't see it because you have that residue on the top but that residue if it's a good healthy biological soil should break down in a year mm-hmm. I've seen residue from you know two years previous on on some of that so you know getting there's Getting the other legs of the stool involved, like getting the cover crops in there. However, you you know, burn it down or knock it down or whatever, and getting the diversity in there is are there really huge legs to that that uh, uh, no till situation? And I see people doing it, and I see them having success with it. Mm-hmm. Some years might not be so good, but it's going to take time yeah. for us to get it down.
1: Yeah, I think you said earlier you don't believe in immediate results
0: it, it doesn't happen I, the, the you know I'm, I'm amazed at how quickly we can build soil if we really try but I think we have to be a little bit careful about how we're doing it too and I think you know it's kind of cliche to say working with nature or mimicking nature mm-hmm. or whatever but you do have to see what nature is doing and you can speed it up a little bit but you have to be careful not to overdo it because you can do you, you can create other imbalances.
2: I think Sandy, when she joined the soil team for LSP, realized how much some of the so called conventional farms are doing in this area mm-hmm. to create soil health and regenerative. And you see the corporations are pushing that more and more for regenerative type farming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is moving that direction. A lot of farms are caught up, and that's probably why we started going backwards a little bit too. Even organic is just another technique of farming, and that's the farming that we chose to do just for the nutritional reasons yeah. and reasons that we believe in. But that's a technique, and conventional is a technique. But you get caught up when you're not quite making ends meet at the end of the year. You say, well, what can we do? Well, we need to get a little bit bigger. That's the mindset of the farms. So you keep trying to get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger, and all of a sudden you're not taking care of the little things as much as you should. And it's not working out. So you see the soil go backwards like we did. And now we're just turning around. We're at the point where we can turn around and start looking back at that again.
1: For more information on building soil health profitably and the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program, see the podcast page for Ear to the Ground episode 321 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore@LandStewardshipProject.org at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on whatever podcast platform you utilize. And word of mouth is the best way to spread the word on our podcast. If you like what you hear, tell at least one person about LSP's Ear to the Ground. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.